Hold on to your butt. I'm quite surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Uh, yes, and liberty means talking about whatever the hell I want to. And tonight we're talking about the music of 1968. I mean, when I went back and looked at what is in 68, you get... Oh. Jumpin' Jack Flash. Oh, yeah. Jack Dwyer. So good. And so iconic. Like, this music lives forever. But then you can kind of hop away from that to something completely different, like... <laughs> Oh, but it, it was a time when you could have the uh, oh, I could have the cow sills and the monkeys on the exact same music chart as Jimi Hendrix. I know exactly. You, know, you could yeah. have the monkeys <laughs> daydream believer, and then you could go to. It, it. Have you ever oh yeah. Have you ever been? Oh, I love it. When you go from there to, you know, some more soulful stuff to, like, I don't know. Yep. Motown, Stax, Soul, e- Soul uh, North, and Soul South. It's all 68. I'm, I was, like, listening. I put on playlist, and I listened for hours this morning. Oh, yeah. Just going, and I know most of these songs. It's the beautiful thing. This is one of my very favorite Motown songs. Got it, probably one of my top three favorite Motown songs right here. I love the premise. Yeah. Like, well, you know, I, I, the writer escapes me right at the moment, but the guy that penned this song was uh, depressed and struggling with depression. Well, and if and, you've uh, ever been there... Yeah. Like, if you're, like, really depressed or unhappy for good reason or bad reason, whatever, no reason, yeah. and everybody's happy around you, the sunshine and the sky's blue, everybody's whistling, it's like, oh, go away. It's like the last thing you want to see. Yeah. And you jump from that to say, like, like, all oh, this is 68? Oh, yeah. And a lot of it's Wrecking Crew. Really? Yeah, I mean... You know, I keep I keep mentioning the Wrecking Crew over and over again. Uh, I would urge anybody listening that is not familiar with the Wrecking Crew, there is a documentary that was on Netflix, uh, and it may still be there. It's called The Wrecking Crew. That's the name of it. And in 1963, the major labels in Los Angeles had a pool of studio musicians that they put together. They had a call list. Hmm. It was it was just it started as a simple call list of musicians that were available to back up bands and make records. And uh, they were in their height in 1968. And you had people. Uh, Leon Russell was a member of the Wrecking Crew. 
He was a studio musician. This is before Shelter Records and any of the Leon Russell music. Uh, he was a member of the Wrecking Crew. Had a shaved face, no beard. Uh, you had Glenn Campbell, who was a member of the Wrecking Crew. Oh, okay. And toured with the Beach Boys as a Beach Boy a couple of times when they needed you know someone on stage to be a Beach Boys. Well, and I'm not a, a huge uh, country guy, but I also looked into country from 68. A lot of great music, like oh, Tammy yeah. Wynette, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Merrill Haggard, well, you know, Campbell, uh, Waylon. Campbell couldn't couldn't uh, read he couldn't read music couldn't write music mm. he he played by ear okay and uh he was just a great guitarist and uh him and uh other members of the uh the wrecking crew you know they would bring in something kind of complicated to play and he would look at them and they would play it and he would pick it up well and, and uh and do his part you know i love guys part. that kind of just you know they learn on the fly they intuit the music i mean you need the folks who can actually read it and structure it but the guys that intuit it it's something deep down yeah. you sort of figure it out now um, we're just getting started, folks. Again, this is the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'm Joey, alongside me tonight, Skipper. I, I mean, I, I love that we get to do this. We get I, to hang out for an hour. I appreciate the invite to come out. I, I mean, I, it, you know, most people I run into don't like to just sit around and talk about music trivia. Right. And it's my, it's really my passion, and it's what, I it. and I do it every day with my schedule. I spend couple hours every day listening to actual albums and reading about groups and things that you know happened and i've just kind of immersed myself in it but it's a passion it always it always has been for now me. i want to test your trivia because as i Oof. was listening to some music this morning <laughs> i i swear this one song i heard and i've got it pulled up here on the computer um I, it says it's by gary puckett and the union, and the union gap, gap right but i don't think it's gary puckett and the union gap i think actually well, maybe Gary Puckett and the Union Gap or whoever wrote this damn song was really just thinking of Roy Moore. <laughs> Get out of my mind. Great song, too. Really is, and it, I make the joke, but this song grabbed me this morning. This is the Wrecking Crew now, by the way. It is. Yeah, Gary Puckett. Keep coming back to these guys. It's, well, I mean, that's amazing. I'm, I'm telling you, they were the musicians that made all this music. You led me to believe. Trying to remember exactly who all was on this one. Carol K plays bass on this. Okay. And. Um, You've got some of the members of the Barkays are on this. Well, and I love um, it, like, lyrically, I mean, and also just general sound. This is such a 60s song. The big sweeping vocal, the the buildup and the drama of the lyrics, too. It's not, I think the song pulls off not being creepy despite the yeah. the uh, topic because it's, you can feel his madness building. Yeah. As the song goes on. Hey, Gary Puckett was a really deep guy. Uh, the Union Gap that toured with him, uh, the record company didn't feel that they were strong enough to play on the records. Yeah. And so that's why they would bring in, you know, Don Rondi and Tommy Tedesco. 
Uh, the, and a lot of and nobody. Know, that's the thing about them. They got no credit on any of these albums. And the record companies would literally. I mean, you can pull some of these albums like the Beach Boys, and it will. It, you'll you'll see on there. It'll tell you which Beach Boy played what. That's a total lie. Uh, it was all image as far as the cover went. Tony Tedesco's name doesn't appear on any of the works he ever did, nor does Carol Kay, uh, Don Rondi, uh, Rob Caton, Steve Douglas. <clears throat> None of these guys ever got any fame at all. And it, somebody asked Carol Kay one time, they said, uh, you know, do, does it hurt your feelings that, you know, that, that great bass lick at the beginning of Galveston by, yeah. by uh, Glenn Campbell. Doo -doo 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 -doo. She came up with that just on the spur of the moment in the studio. They said, doesn't it hurt you that you're not on any of these albums? And she said, hell no, I made a million dollars. And she said, I'd rather be rich and famous any day. Exactly. And she said, I could go to the grocery store and nobody knew who the hell I was. Well, and you had the money, but putting the money aside, because it's <laughs> really nice to have a million dollars, especially then. But... Uh, the fact that you also have the memory, you know, when you hear it on the radio, you get that am anonymity yeah. without all the hassles of being famous, and but you still know you were a part of it. Yeah. And it's those stories, the Wrecking Crew, that I'm just learning about it tonight, how it's it's organic, too, in a way. Yep. That it's, it just starts off as a call list. Like, but, who are the talented folks yeah, around? Well, it's like, who is available today to work? You know, we got a we got a booking. You know, they would call Tommy Tedesco at the last minute and say, hey, you know, we got, uh, we, we've got a single we want to produce. Yeah. And uh, we don't have a guitar player for it. Can Are you booked today? And he would say, well, I'm, you know, doing this for the Beach Boys early. I'll be I'll be free after three o'clock. Well, can you show up at this studio and play? And uh, and he would do that kind of thing. And he made an incredible living. Right. You know, all these guys did. They were all based out of uh, uh, Gold Gold Star Studio was the main studio where they gathered. Hmm. And they did a lot of recording there. All of the Beach Boys music that you heard in the '60s, every Beach Boys hit. It's the Beach Boys singing, right? But the music being played is the Wrecking Crew, and that's amazing too. And to jump away from '68 for a second, when you have a certain sound, like you have the Muscle Shoals sound, you right. have uh, the Philly sound, you have Motown sound, you have different mm -hmm. sounds that come out of different places. And the secret is, it's a common group of people that have this bond. They get used to playing together, and the producers know what they want. They kind of generally have an idea. Yep. And so it it's not a surprise that all this music that we remember 50 years ago and, and that was, as a common bond. That was happening everywhere. You know, in Motown, you had all of the Motown musicians. I mean, you listen to Temptation songs, you listen to Four Top songs. A lot of those songs, that's Marvin Gaye on drums. You know, <laughs> I mean, so cool. uh, Tommy Chong of Cheech and Chong was a studio musician at Motown. Wow. And played on several Motown hits. Uh, and uh, there's one, there's a one-hit wonder that he did with Motown too. I, I, I'll have to look. I haven't thought about it. just this hit me. I haven't thought about it in years. But I think it's "What You Gonna Do About Me" was the name of the song. <laughs> and I cannot remember who the little one-hit wonder group that did it. But he actually sings on that as well. Now, if you, I want to get a little personal for a second. If you don't mind me asking, how sure. old are you at sixty-eight? In sixty-eight, I am a, uh, I am a solid six years old. Six years old. <laughs> do you actually have? memories from that year in terms of music I, i'll tell you uh i do uh mm -hmm. and, and i'll tell you how i do um my grandparents lived in laverne alabama and on the weekends we would travel to laverne alabama and being an only child i was relocated to the back seat 
with uh, whatever life-size G.I. Joe I had to play with or whatever. And my mother would put on the radio, and we would listen to WHHY leaving town until it ran out, and we couldn't pick it up, and then we would tune in to the little station in Laverne that was WLVN. Yeah. And I got a double dose of music. I got rock and roll all the way out of town, and I heard these songs. I remember going to my grandmother's house, listening to uh, WHHY, this is later than 68, but... um, ABC News came on and the Beatles had broken up. Oh, and I remember hearing that as a bulletin, a news bulletin on the radio. And I, we would listen to rock and roll down there, and the station in Laverne played country, and uh, that's where I was exposed to Merle Haggard and Conway Twitty, yeah, and little clips from Jerry Clower and stuff like that. And if we stayed late enough, coming back at night, my father would tune in the Grand Ole Opry on WSM on the AM in the car. And then on the way back on Saturday night from visiting with my grandparents, it was the Grand Ole Opry all the way into Montgomery. And and, uh, and that's where I I mean I just remember, but my mother was a music fanatic <laughs> like I am. She she bought every time she went to the store. She bought every hot forty five rpm that was out and what's such you describing that too like you're getting all this from the radio it's all mostly audio interface like you're, yeah, you're watching i'm sure some tv but yeah but it's you know you would see you would, i remember seeing uh you know some of the groups on like uh i remember i remember the seeing the ed sullivan show but i couldn't really tell you what right you know but i remember watching uh the Smothers Brothers and seeing Jefferson Airplane in blackface. Wow. Um, and Grace Lick doing a Panther salute at the end of their set. Wow. Um, I remember I remember how edgy... Wait, they, wait, they were doing blackface as a tribute? No. They, no. Well, well it, it, it was a protest oh. of sorts. That because they wouldn't allow black artists Because on? they wouldn't allow... Uh, they wouldn't allow certain music to be performed, oh. and they wouldn't allow certain acts to perform if they were edgy. Like uh, Edwin Starr was banned; he didn't get to play a lot on television because he was an anti-war activist, and sure. not only doing the music, but you know, he war. What's it good for? And twenty-five miles, you know, were protest songs, and they were edgy enough that. You know, at that time on network television, that was just a little bit too much in the envelope. Well, and I, I think what's really cool is you describing that you're mostly getting this through just audio, like you're hearing the music. Mm-hmm. Is There's a cool thing happening these days with the internet. Is Okay, video still plays. You'll get huge viral YouTube videos, and TV still has millions of viewers. But because of the world of podcasting, you're now getting millions of people consuming all sorts of audio and storytelling and learning. Learning through just hearing is coming back. Right. And yeah. it's it's yeah. so cool that it's, a, I think, a revolutionary time right now. And it gives us a chance to sort of look back. And time's playing tricks on me, Skipper. Like, 68 is 20 years before I'm born in 88. So, <laughs> wow. You, see, that's that's hard. See, to me... But I've been... I, al- but here's know. where it's playing a trick on me. Wow. I've been alive longer than the distance between 1968 and when I was born. Right. I'll be 30 December 1st. Right. And it's a weird trick going on. You know, my, my memories of the 60s, 68, um, the thing that I remember most uh, about that time frame, and I'm not saying I remember the exact year. I remember things that happened that year. I remember... Watching as I was telling you CBS Evening News, and the uh, 
underneath Walter Cronkite, they would have uh, a death count and a wounded count from yeah. Vietnam every night on the air. And they would have film that was probably two days old coming in. Everything you were seeing on CBS Evening News was about two days old because they had to shoot the film, develop the film, and fly it out of Vietnam to right. the United States or to New York to get it, you know. And the news was slower coming, but it was also... Um, as I've gotten older and, and done more research, it was the first generation in the 60s is the very first generation where all of the kids growing up had coast-to-coast -coast television. Mm. It was the first time that that had occurred. It's nationalized. And sure. it was the very first time that if there was a riot in Birmingham, Alabama, the whole world saw that riot on the news right. the next day. Or that night. Well, and I think it, it gets to a point I was just thinking of. Like, I think politically and economically, the 40s and the 50s kind of still define our society pretty well. Right. But culturally, it's the 60s. It's still amazing how much the 60s continue to, I think, to punch above their weight in terms of cultural influence. Well, I, th I, I think that the, the reason the 60s exploded like they did with so much protest was because, um, you know, you were over, you were 10 years plus into the 60s out of World War II. You had Korean conflict going on. Mm -hmm. um, and then Vietnam. And, uh, well, well, Korea in the 50s and then Vietnam. And with television, it was polarizing. And, and, you know, instead of, you know, news making its way across the country and something being months old, you had all of these people reacting to events and demonstrating and you know demonstrations blew up all over the world i mean exactly. same thing was going on in in europe in 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 london you know the 60s it was the first time that you know the whole the whole country had radio and they had been keeping up with radio but you know you had national broadcasts going all through europe right you know in france germany you know, everywhere. And um. well, and I think that allowed for the, the music, to get back to the music, the music in like 6A, 6A to breathe and to be as diverse as it was. Where I was telling uh, Greg, like as I was listening to some of the songs from 68, I had to turn, I listened to most of the songs this morning, like uh, that are were real popular in 68. But when Yummy, Yummy, Yummy came on, I was like, I have to turn off this crap. But that's, that. you still have that, but you have all this diverse rock and roll soul music. Yeah, and, and you know, the protest stuff played into all of that. I don't oh, yeah. think there will ever be another era of protest music quite like the 60s. I agree. Um, because, um, you know, the political factions that were out there, people were so um, passionate about, you know, what was going on in Vietnam and everything. It, most everything that was protest was Vietnam, but there was other stuff being protested as well. Oh, I'd imagine so. Um, I'd imagine so. I, re I remember one of my favorite protest songs from the era was Frida Payne, who did Band of Gold. She had a song called Bring the Boys Home, mm. and it ended her career. Uh, she was a big fan and worked with uh, Edwin Starr, and she went on tours with him, and when she release bring the boys home you know she had a hit with band of gold but but at, but stations just were really turned off to her because they you know there were a lot of stations that would not play a lot of these tunes i mean some of them didn't make it on They're every turned station. off yeah yeah well and be surprised at what stations didn't play now I, I have to mention because well i was taught in college that people you know the clothes they choose to wear send a message my teacher would say why are you wearing those shoes i'm like because they're comfortable. 
No, Joey, it's because, you know, everybody likes them, right? No, no it's literally, these are comfortable. They're not that stylish. You're, you're not helping me make my point. Well, fair enough. I just like comfy shoes. Anyway, sometimes people do send a message when they put on certain clothes. And you tonight came up to this News Talk studio wearing a Stax hat. Stax Records cap, yeah. 68 was a pivotal year for Stax. Okay, tell me and, this story. Well... Stax Records um, was the Motown of the South, and they had acts like the Barkays, Otis Redding recorded at Stax. Now, Otis did stuff for other labels, and a lot of these bands recorded on other labels, but Stax Records on Macklemore Avenue in, in Memphis, Tennessee, was uh, just this place where musicians gathered, and it was in a it's in a neighborhood. Uh, you can still go visit the actual studio up on Macklemore Avenue. And you had Booker T and the MGs there. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, Gladys Knight came there. Elvis recorded there. Uh, it was just a studio. It was, and, and, and that's all Stax was. And, and to subsidize the studio, occasionally, if uh, a group could not get an album out on another label, Stax you know, kind of came up with their own label to put records out if they thought it was pretty good and you know uh, Otis Redding tried to get stuff on other major labels and Stax was kind of a secondary player and uh, the thing about Stax was that it was a 50-50 mix of white and black musicians all through the 60s up until 1968 um, Martin Luther King got shot mm. and he was assassinated at the Lorraine Hotel which is about eight to ten minutes from Stack Studios. A lot of people that are in music know this, but people outside of music, when you mention Lorraine Motel, you only think of the place where King was assassinated. Right. The Lorraine Motel was where everybody lived that worked at Stax Records. As a matter of fact, uh, Steve Cropper, you know, a longtime musician uh, with the Blues Brothers later on in his career, he was a producer at Stax. And his apartment, which is what he called it, or his room at the, sta at, the, at the motel at the Lorraine was about three units down from where King was the night that he got shot. I mean, he couldn't go home that night because of the shooting and the police had the hotel wrapped up. He spent that night uh, in his office at Stack Studios. Mm. And once that happened, that, that record company and that, that studio in the middle of this neighborhood on McLemore Avenue in Memphis... The blacks began to riot, and then the white musicians were less likely to come down there. And the ones that did come down there, sometimes if people didn't know who they were, you could get in a real hairy situation, you know, trying to get to the studio. And Stax lasted into the 70s. I mean, they, they were around when the Watts riots went on, you know, in the 70s, and they sent all their musicians out there to play. Watts Stax. You know, yeah, we're and, talking uh, about that and they did a, you know, and they also put together a big package show, you know, and went and toured Europe and that sort of thing. And, uh, but the, but it's like uh, Steve Cropper said, and many of them said, he said, after the assassination of King, the studio was never the same. It wasn't a gathering place anymore. It was polarized. Hmm. And the neighborhood didn't accept a lot of the white musicians coming down there and hanging out. Well, and, it's, and uh, <laughs> I'm reading here, too, that when the riots went on, obviously a lot of the buildings in the vicinity yeah. were destroyed in the yeah. riots, but Stax was left untouched. Well, it was a, it was kind of a shrine. It was an old movie house. It was a theater, uh, and that was the brilliance of it. It had been, uh, it had been reworked. 
but they didn't have enough money to complete the uh, the uh, the restoration, and so it had a sloped floor, kind of like if any of you my age remember the old Martin Twin Theaters here in Montgomery, you'd walk in and the floor sloped down from the back, mm. and but because they didn't change that floor, it made it acoustically perfect to record in. And uh, some of the greatest songs that were ever recorded were recorded at Stax Records. Some of the greatest Elvis hits ever recorded were recorded at Stax. And it was just a place everybody loved to go. Well, and Uh, I I subscribe to this idea, too. And it's not something I can prove. And if somebody really pushed me, like, prove it scientifically, okay, I'd have to, you know, cry uncle. But when a place has so much that happens there... I think it like gets into the walls, you know. And I'm not just talking about the smoke and whatever else went on in those buildings. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like those. I think those memories, those events, get into the place. I, I went to Stax in Memphis, and uh, you can tour it now. Um, it's an awesome tour. If you go hmm. up there, when you drive to Stax. Uh, it's almost like the scene from uh, what is it? Vacation. Roll them up. <laughs> you know, you get you get that feeling. You get a little nervous. I mean, I got you know because you'll be go. It's 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 a it's a very bad part of town now. And, and when when we drove to Stacks, we passed two or three cop cars with lights on, with people out in the street in handcuffs. You know, and uh, that kind of stuff literally was going on all around the studio. But you get to the studio, and the uh, the parking area is fenced in with security. You drive into Stacks, and you don't have to worry about your car because there's security guards watching your cars with cameras, and they lock you in, and you go in and take the tour. And but when I was in the in in the studio, I walked in and I walked up behind the control board, which is a very simple, you know, control board with a a four-track and an eight-track gates equipment, you know, reel-to-reel. Um, you just get emotional. Yeah. I mean, because you, you start looking, and they have a list on the wall of hits that were recorded there, and as you start looking down it, you know, you're standing right there, you know, where Otis Redding sang... Tender, you know, try a little tenderness. And you're right there, you know, where uh, Isaac Hayes worked on the first drafts of the theme from Shaft. You know, and you're right there where uh, Elvis Presley recorded The Grass Don't Pay No Mind. And and, uh, Way Down did some takes of Way Down, which was finished, of course, in the jungle room at his house with the RCA mobile unit. But you, you get... You know, and as you walk through, you know, you see Ike Turner, Ike and Tina Turner recorded there. Mm. And it just, uh, you know, it's hard to explain, but it will just choke you up. Yeah. And um, you can just feel the music in the walls. Exactly. And And, uh, it's just, it's an incredible time period. I I just kind of had this idea because I like talking to you about this stuff. And as I delved into the topic, I was like, my goodness. Like, what is going on here? But we got (laughs) to hit a break here. Now, this song makes me want to fall in love with a girl named Eleanor. (laughs) Yep. Titles. It's so good. Flowin' Eddie. It's so good. That's Flowin' Eddie. Folks, you're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Hanging out with me tonight, Skipper. Talking about the music of 1968. Just having myself a good time. We'll be right back. Even though your folks hate me, 
stations it got played on uh funk. the white stations kind of did the pass on a lot of stuff you had yeah. to be pretty mainstream you know to get on but harvey scales was a character uh he hung around the studio he always dressed to the nines he was not afraid to wash a car if it would get him some studio time he would go to bars and drink and go on binges and write song ideas down on napkins and then run to stacks and begged to be let in the studio to record those songs. Yeah. And just put together members like that's the bar K's on that. Okay. You it know, that's sounds the, funky that, like that. Well, it's it's a little distorted, and here's why. Harvey thought he was an engineer, <laughs> and he liked to engineer his own stuff, and he would start tapes and run around. It, it's a very short walk from the board right around through a door into the studio. And he would prop the door and, and mix, start the mix and get everything kind of set where he thought it would be, and he would run around and record his own stuff stuff to save from paying an engineer and so some of the harvey scale stuff is a little distorted yeah. and that was a little overdriven but that's the way it is on the you can't find a cleaner copy than what you this just heard how it was and they, <laughs> but it was like you know well it's harvey we'll put it out yeah and so they would they just put it out i know? love that that's good stuff now here's one i actually own on vinyl oh, okay like i did when i was looking at oh i actually have this from 68 this artwork we've got it's nothing you can't Compare to vinyl artwork. Archie Bell and the Drells. Oh. Tighten up. This is Atlantic Records. Hi, everybody. Houston, Texas. I'm Archie Bell with the Drells. Of Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. We don't only sing, but we dance just as good as we want. Poor Archie. In Houston, we just started a new dance called the Tighten Up. This is the music we tighten up. 
like how it's so freeform. It sounds like a, a jam a, a band would tighten up with. Yep. Come on now, drummer. Archie Bell is one of, to me, is one of the sad stories in rock and roll or in soul music. He was so passionate about the music, and his band... From everything I've ever read about Archie Bell and the the original members of the Drills, they were all about the music. They love playing. They love touring. They love getting up in front of a crowd. They love making records, and they they made it their life's work. They were businessmen, and only thing that they had on their mind was making records. Yeah. And they finally got signed by Atlantic, and they got a hit with Tighten Up. They released Tighten Up, and Archie Bell got drafted. And had to go into the service, and uh, by the time he got out of the service, the song had peaked on the charts and was gone, and music had changed just a little bit, Mm -hmm. and... uh, the band had gone off into other things, and it just they 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 were gone all because he got drafted. Man, and uh, it's like they finally got to where they wanted to be, and then it's over. And they're they're I mean they were I think believe at the time he got drafted they were actually waiting on the album to drop and the song to be released. And when the song was number one, he was overseas. He never heard it. Oh. He never heard the song in tight rotation on radio in the United States. My goodness. It was an oldie by the time that he is, got back. That is tragic. That is very tragic. Now, I'm, I'm pulling up one here that has been covered by Billy Idol. <laughs> but I, and I forgot how many, how many <laughs> damn hits Tommy James has, in particular. Tommy James and the Shondells. Yep. He just... And every he's been covered so many times too. Oh yeah. But I always go back to the originals. They're the best. The Money Money album. Which was actually a psychedelic rock album, believe it or not. Really? There was a lot of yeah. A lot of interesting things on that album to listen to. And this is where I like I gotta keep doing my homework because there's so much music to consume and learn. Tommy James was in New York City, and uh, there was a, uh, uh, a financial institution that was across from the hotel, and there was a sign on the side of their, that financial institution that said, Money, Money. Mm-hmm. And he got the idea for Money, Money. Money, Money. And uh, <laughs> kind of worked out like I mean you know you know you never know where inspiration's going to come for a tune. Well, and then there's a great documentary. I mean, the classic albums documentaries are fantastic. Usually, sometimes they get a little too interview heavy. I love it when the engineers sitting behind the board. And this, what I'm thinking of, I played a clip earlier, is Eddie Kramer behind the board at the Electric Ladyland Studios, yeah. named after the album, right? And such a creative album. Oh yeah. Uh, so like. Hendrix has great rock songs. That's where All Along the Watchtower comes from. Crosstown Traffic comes from. But then, what is it? Burning the Midnight Oil or something? Burning the Midnight Lamp. The Midnight Lamp, yeah. Yeah. Burning the Midnight Lamp. It's such a weird, psychedelic, interesting song, though. And Hendrix is playing all sorts of different instruments. And, I mean, again, one of those guys that you wonder, is he legendary because he died so young? Or would he have kept doing interesting things if he had continued to live? Right. 
uh, it's it's difficult to know. And I'm I, the rock music is what blows me away. How much is like comes out of '68? Well, I I think I have this yeah. correct. The first Led Zeppelin concert is in '68. Yeah. Oh, I want to mention this. I, lo- I looked up Money Money while we were talking. I just want to go back. Yeah. Uh, it was actually the word Money. It was on the Mutual of New York building uh-huh. in New York City, and they had a. Uh, uh, they had a like a little sign up there, Moni, M-O-N-Y, like M period O period N, and that's where he got it from. I knew it was a financial institution. Okay, yeah, but I wanted, mutual to, I wanted to clear that up because my see, I'm I'm in my fifties now. Yeah, and sometimes things fade a little bit. Oh, sure, I find myself things that I used to could just pull up and. You know, somebody could mention something and I could just pull it up immediately. I have to, like, sit and go, wait a minute now. I know this. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Let me. It's it's a party getting old. Now, it sucks. I can't. Uh, sucks so bad. Now, somebody told me you got away with playing this on the air. The pusher? And I don't think we can play the whole no, we thing. No, play, we played it. We play it on. Uh, on really? One, yeah, we play it on 107.1. Uh, we, we played it many times on 107.1. See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hesitate here because I don't know the rules on News Talk. Oh, you don't need to know. You don't need to I'll play the beginning. I won't get to the chorus. But he's using the he's using the term correctly. Yeah. The G D term. Yep. Oh, and this stuff is so heavy, kinda speaks to that era. You know I smoke a lot of grass. Oh Lord, I popped a lot of pills. <laughs> you know who wrote this, do you? Who? You know who wrote this song? Hoyt Axton. Hoyt Axton. Hoyt Axton is a, uh, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most underrated songwriters and unknown musicians of the 60s and 70s. Um, his, his original version of the Pusher uh, is is just incredible. And... Uh, Steppenwolf's is a is a copy. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people actually have copied that song over the years. I mean, a whole bunch of people have. Well, it's uh, the line. Yeah, I smoked yeah. a lot of grass. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, it, so was, uh, it, it was. It was. See, you know, Steppenwolf's version was used in Easy Rider, but uh, ah, okay, there it is. Um, it, you know, uh, I'm trying to see if I, I'm trying to remember what album it was on by Hoyt Action, and I cannot remember. But that album is a bona fide classic, and uh, if you and I actually have it at the house, and I'm see this is one of those '50s moments when I can't pull up the name of it, but it is a great album on on Capitol Records, and uh, his version is not unlike uh, Steppenwolf's. Only theirs is a little heavier, but that whole album has got a lot of folk stuff, and a lot of the subject matter on that album is all about drugs and cocaine oh, sure. and. Uh, expanding your mind well, on LSD this is and before everything gets illegal too, like yeah. in the way it is illegal today. Hoyt Axton, his writing, uh, he wrote everything from uh, uh, pop ballads to country tunes. Uh, his biggest hit was Della and a Dealer and a Dog Named Jake <laughs> and a Cat Named Kalamazoo. And uh, then, of course, he wrote The Pusher, and then uh, he wrote, uh, oh, gosh, I think there's a there's a Three Dog Night song that they covered him. Wow. Uh, Joy to the World. 
Okay. That's a Hoyt Axton song. Now this, that's also on the album that's on the Pusher. It's it's on that same album with the Pusher. Now this next band, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it is the band that everybody should know. It's a bunch of Canadians, right? Except for Levon, the drummer, Levon Helm, right? I yeah, the like. best Americana band that wasn't from America, <laughs> right? And then of course this is save the, the drummer. This is the classic music from the Big Pink. The song is the Wait. Oh, and it's still my favorite version of this though. I is actually done by uh, the Staple Singers. Yes. Uh, there's a version of this, a studio version of this by the Staple Singers that just will make you have right. goosebumps. I well, mean, you'll have goosebumps listening to it. It's just... Mavis is so good. And I love, though, like, Mavis has the power yeah. in her voice, and I love... Stacks records. Uh, I, and I've stacks. got a bunch of her original stacks on vinyl. Like, yeah. I, we love the Staple Singer at our house. Well, they weren't they weren't always with Stacks. You know, they, they started as a gospel group. Um, right, and then... They were, uh, their dad, Pop Staples, preached, and they did that, and they got into secular music way later on, but... Uh, you can't find, I defy you to find a bad Staple Singers album. Well, no matter what the subject matter is, gospel or secular. You ask and you shall receive, too. Here's the Staple Singers doing the wait. I pulled in the oh, night. I was feeling about a half past day. I just needed some place where I could lay my head. This was recorded at Memphis, up in Memphis. Can you tell me? I love how you can hear pops in here too. <laughs> yeah, it just that's just uh you can't get much better than that. Well, and of course, they performed it with the band in The Last Wall. I have a bad taste in my mouth with the band, though. What bothers me about the band, hmm. I love. I have every album that they ever did. I mean, sure. I've got every single one of them. And uh, I've got a lot of the solo stuff, too. I've got a lot of Levon Helm solo albums, which are, are as good as any band album ever released. But uh, Robbie Robertson... Um, and I'm not. I don't. I don't want to badmouth the guy, but Robbie just kind of turned his back on hmm. the members of the band. He he even you know I think that they all wrote a lot of these songs together, but on the credits, Robbie in his contract, you know, with Capitol, they he's uh, the songwriter. You look at the songwriter; it's Robbie Robertson. He got all the money off of it, and you know I don't know how you play in a band hmm. with somebody for you know five albums six albums and then that person is sick and they're broke and they've got no money and you're raking in millions of dollars and you're not helping and you don't lift a finger to even pick up the phone and call you know and i don't and you gotta i don't know what kind of individual does that i mean maybe there were things at play in the band that we didn't know about, you know, and, and maybe some attitudes and all that we didn't know about, and these things that were going on. But um, the way Levon Helm was treated and some of the other members of the band, it's just, it's bittersweet. Yeah, you know, in the truth. I love the music, and I love, I track band albums all the time. I listen to them, you know, I've, I've actually got 
uh, cahoots in my car right now. The one we play the most you know? at the house is uh, Islands. Yeah, and you know, I t- and I'll tell you some extracurricular. If anybody's listening out there, is really interested in this stuff we're talking about. Uh, there's an album by Levon Helm called Americana. Okay, and uh, if you've never heard that album, that's a that's a band album. And uh, there is a great, great version of uh, Watermelon Time in Georgia on that. <laughs> and it, it, it's uh, the whole al- it's a concept album about life in these United States. Mm, I got to check it, that and out. And it's just uh, every track is priceless. And, it, and it's the band. I mean, if you like the band, you'll love that album. That's an Absolutely. awesome album. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll, I definitely have to tell my roommate, he's the. Huge. I love the band, but he's the big band. Oh, you got to get him a copy of Americana. I will. It's about a 30 buck album. You're okay. going to have to spend a little cash to get it. I think it's worth I like or, Unexpected or, Gifts and Unexpected. I don't think he listens. So I, I think <laughs> I'll, I'll surprise him with that uh, one day. Okay. I mean, just I, I'm, I was just blown away as I sat and was looking through everything that came out in 68. 68, it was just such a great year, you know, in, in music. And uh, 60, the uh, Three Dog Night, we got the very first record for. From Three Dog yeah. Night in 1968, their very first single release was a song called "Nobody." Yeah, okay, and, uh, you can probably find it. It's 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 online. Uh, it was a stiff and no uh, radio. I think it uh, it made it into the top 100. And uh, but it uh, the record company liked. Yeah, here it is. This is it. I always thought this was a great record, too. Yeah. It's, I love the playing on it already. Yeah. It's got that 60s sound. Yeah. And uh, they would go on for about... Oh, I think two or three more releases before they would get some pay dirt yeah. and uh, become really rock and roll legends. This is one of the band. This is one of the bands from that started in the '60s that uh, that I kind of grew up listening to, and one of the bands that kind of caught me. I love Three Dog Night. Now, did yeah, they, they, these guys were huge. Didn't Fleet, you know? would Max first album drop in '68? The Peter Green version. Uh, I think I so. I think they predate. Maybe. 68, but they were right around that time period. We can look it up real quick. Yeah. I, I find myself having to go to the discography page every so often to check some of these. Cause, yeah, to double check. Like I said, I'm in my 50s, and my mind is not what it used to be. Uh, mm. There was a time when I, I could remember all this stuff, and the older I get, I'm beginning to wonder if I don't have dementia, maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's saying they... I guess you can just call it old age. There's, it's uh, saying they dropped in... They formed in 67. Yeah. Uh, yeah, their self-titled debut album was a No Frills Blues album yeah. released in February 68. 68, yeah. 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 Wow. I just remember my first album that I ever heard by Fleetwood Mac was Mystery to Me. And that was when Bob Welch was a member of the band. Hmm. Uh, you know, you know Bob Welch from the seventies, right? Ebony Eye or, or uh, Ebony, I think Ebony Eyes, and uh, had a couple other little minor hits. And uh, he was a he was a character. He wrote uh, uh, "Hypnotized" for "Mystery to Me," 
And that was a really great album, too. The one with the monkey eating a cake on the front of it. This cartoon <laughs> of a big, weird-looking ape eating a cake. Well, that's what's so fun about being vinyl heads, too. Like, you know, just the artwork is special. Like, and things you couldn't even see on a CD jewel case, obviously. Like, the detail. The yeah, and I, detail. I love gatefolds. Those out, you know, the gatefolds, when you fold it open and there's all that extra, you know, the lyrics are included. And uh, here's a quick quiz for you. What was the first album that ever included all of the lyrics on the album? Mm. First time the lyrics were actually printed on an album. I'm who, stumped. Who did it first? I have no clue. Sergeant okay. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, really? the Beatles. Really? They put the lyrics on the reverse of the album, and that was the first time. And it was an afterthought. They just thought they would do it for fun. Well, and, and it caught on. And speaking of the Beatles, <laughs> this is probably uh, the biggest song of '68. Yeah. And we're out of time. The song that should have been three and a half minutes that went on forever and ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, Skipper, thank you for joining me tonight. Had a good time. Thank you very much. And Enjoyed it. it. Loved it. And folks, thank you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow night. I think Brandon's going to join me. We'll figure something out. Thank you for listening once again. Have a good night. Hey, Jude, don't be afraid.